Welcome, dear listener, to the first episode of The Passenger, the channel that aims to bring you first-hand accounts from past travelogues. Today's episode emerged from a book called History of a Voyage to the Land of Brazil, where the author, John DeLary, describes the adventures of his journey from 16th century France to the land of Brazil. If you are not familiar with the time and space where this voyage took place, make no worries about it. Full context shall be provided in its due time. For now, let's get started and give John DeLary his word. Quote, A number of cosmographers and other historians of our time have already written about the length, width, beauty and fertility of that fourth part of the world called America, or the land of Brazil. My intention and my subject in this history will be simply to declare what I have myself experienced, seen, heard and observed. Around noon we put our sails to the wind at the exit from the Hunfleur Harbour in Normandy. There was no lack of cannonades, trumpets, drums, fives and other triumphal honours usually accorded to ships of war that set forth. Leaving the land behind us, we sailed out onto the great and impetuous ocean sea. We could see in the distance the coast of England and sailed alongside it. The sea swelled, and for six or seven days it was so rough that sometimes I saw the waves leap about the upper deck. The vessel was so shaken that no sailor, however skillful, could keep himself on his feet. When in such turbulence one is suddenly lifted so high on these terrifying mountains of water that it seems one must rise to heaven, and just as abruptly one plummets so low that it seems one must penetrate to the hollows of the deepest gulfs and abysses. It occurs to me that the poet who said that those who go on the sea are only four fingers from death puts them at too great distance from it. I will add this by way of preface to some episodes that we will see further on. The Spaniards boast, and even more do the Portuguese, of having been the first to discover the land of Brazil. They consequently maintain that they are the lords of all those countries. They claim that the French who travel in those parts are usurpers, and if they find them on the sea and at their mercy, they wage such war on them that they have even flayed some of them alive or put them to some other kind of cruel death. The French, who maintain the contrary, that they have their due share in these newfound countries, not only refuse to be beaten by the Spaniards, and even less by the Portuguese, but defend themselves valiantly 
and often render blow for blow to their enemies. On the 25th of December, Christmas Day, they met a caravel of Spaniards and fired a few musket shots at them, seized them and brought them alongside our ships. And because it was not only a fine ship, but also loaded with white salt, it greatly pleased our captains, who had put all the Spaniards dispossessed of their goods, not only left no morsel of biscuit or of other supplies with these poor people, but what is worse, they tore their sails and even took away their ship's boat, without which they could not approach land. I think it would have been better to send them to the bottom than to leave them in such a state. And indeed, abandoned us to the mercy of the water, if some ship did not come to their rescue, they must certainly have either drowned or died of hunger. I must say here that I have seen practiced on the sea what is also done most often on land, that is, he who has weapons in his fist and who is the strongest carries the day and imposes the law on his companion. After this pretty piece of work committed to the great regret of a number of us, we were pushed by a favorable wind south-southwest and thrown forward onto the high sea. I had always thought that the sailors who spoke of flying fish were telling us tales. However, experience showed me that they really did exist. We began to see big schools of them jumping out of the water and soaring into the air, since often it even happened that some would hit against the masts and fall into our ships, we could easily catch them in our hands. It was very flavorful and good to eat. There is still another thing that I have observed. These poor flying fish, whether they are in the water or in the air, are never at rest. For when they are in the sea, the albacore and other big fish, pursuing them to eat them, wage continual war. And if they try to escape by flight, there are certain seabirds that seize and feed on them. We also caught many sharks. These are not only monstrous in appearance, but also, since they have very sharp and cutting teeth, are so dangerous that if they grab a man by the leg or some other part of the body, they either carry that member off or drag him to the bottom. We also saw whales. There was one that rose up near our ship and gave me such a fright that until I saw it move, I thought it was a rock against which our ship was about to crash and be shattered. I observed that when it was about to dive, it raised its head above the sea and spewed more than two casks of water from its mouth into the air. Then, sounding, it made such a horrible roiling of the water that I was afraid that it would draw us in after it and that we would be engulfed by it.
the sun is so burning hot that in addition to the violent heat that we endured, we were so sorely pressed by thirst. Aside from two small meals a day, we had no fresh water or other drink at our disposal that for my part, my breath failed me. Furthermore, our fresh water was so polluted and likewise so full of worms that merely in drawing it from the containers where it is kept on board ship, even the least squeamish of us could not keep from spitting. What do you say to that, my finicky gentleman? Who, when you are a little oppressed by the heat, after changing your shirt and having your hair freshly curled, enjoy resting in a fine cool room, seated in a chair or on a bed of ease, and could not think of taking a meal unless the dishes are shining, the glasses polished, the napkins white as snow, the bread nicely cut, the meat as delicate as you please, properly prepared and served, and the wine or other draught clear as emerald. Are you willing to board the ship to live in such fashion? For you, I don't advise it, and it will tempt you even less when you hear what happened on our return. I ask you to defer a little to those who have endured such torments and have experienced things which, to tell the truth, cannot slip into the understanding of man unless, as the proverb says, they have been through hungry times. One of the pilots, called Jean de Main of Harfleur, although he didn't know A from B, had nevertheless, by long experience with his maps, astrolabs and Jacob's stuff, become so expert in the art of navigation that often, and especially during storms, I would see him silence a learned personage who in calm weather would pride himself on teaching the theory of it. Not, however, that I condemn or wish in any way to disparage the sciences that are acquired and learned in schools and by the study of books, such is far from my intention, but I must ask that you do not settle on a mere opinion whose over it may be that you cite me reason against the experience of a thing. On Sunday, the 17th of March, 1557, leaving the high sea on the left, we entered the inlet of the sea, the saltwater estuary called Guanabara by the savages and Janeiro by the Portuguese. You can well imagine that when we saw we were so near the place that we had set out for, with some hope of soon putting foot to ground, we were filled with joy and gave wholehearted thanks to God. Unquote. Facing storms, piracy and thirst, the hero of our story, as well as his companions, finally arrived to Brazil. However, why is a Frenchman from the Protestant Church going to Brazil in the first place? Let's go back in time and figure that out.
Italy, 1440, Renaissance. A man named Lorenzo Valla exposes the most famous forgery in European history, a document used for centuries by popes to claim their legal right over earthly possessions turned out to be fake. According to this forged imperial decree, Constantine the Great, the Roman Emperor that in the 4th century AD gave Christians freedom of worship, had also offered all of the Western Roman Empire to the Church. The fabrication of such a generous and prestigious donation was with the intent of having unquestionable legitimacy over worldly goods. But Lorenzo Valla called bullshit on this one. You see, the donation of Constantine mentions things that do not belong there, that go against the historical timeline, that are anachronistic. Let's see what Lorenzo Valla himself has to say about this. Quote, they say the city of Rome is theirs. There's the kingdom of Sicily and Naples, the whole of Italy, the Gauls, the Spains, the Germans, the Britons, indeed, the whole West. For all these are contained in the instrument of the donation itself. So all these are yours, Supreme Pontiff. And it is your purpose to recover them all? To despoil all kings and princes of the West of their cities or compel them to pay you a yearly tribute? Is that your plan? The donation is comprised of contradictions, impossibilities, stupidities, barbarisms and absurdities. I pass over the fact that the writer calls the tonsure a crown, and the Roman pontiff, Pope, although that word had not yet begun to be applied to him as a distinctive title, and everything is stuffed with these words we decree, we decorate, imperial, imperial rank, power, glory. Does not that barbarous way of talking show that the rigmarole was composed not in the age of Constantine, but later? And the document mentions only the western provinces. What are the boundaries of the west? Where do they begin? Where do they end? The necessary words you omit you heap on superfluous ones. For whoever composes a narrative about an earlier age either writes at the dictation of the Holy Spirit or follows the authority of former writers and of those, of course, who wrote concerning their own age. So whoever does not follow earlier writers will be one of those to whom the remoteness of the event affords the boldness to lie. These stories tend rather to the destruction of faith by their falsity, than to the establishment of faith by their wonders." Unquote. Ooh, dear listener, you might be wondering if Bala got burned at the stake after this roast. Not really, because he was employed at the court of Afonso V of Aragon, and since Afonso himself had territorial disputes with the Pope, this critique came at a good time and was perhaps not a coincidence. So Lorenzo Valla had a political shield to rely on. But anyway, the real significance of this affair is correlated with the methods of critical thinking that Valla employs to the analysis of a text. And he does not shrink himself in applying these methods to the analysis of the Bible. Lorenzo Valla realized that the Latin Bible, called Vulgate, was a relatively poor translation of the original Greek and subsequently, the theology elaborated throughout the Middle Ages 
was ultimately dubious. The following expression signifies the ethos of the Christian humanism. Ad fontes, back to the source and the belief in its purity. Ultimately, we might be talking about the eternal struggle between tradition and critique. One humanist in particular was immensely influenced by Lorenzo Valla's school of thought, and his name is Erasmus of Rotterdam. Leuven, Belgium, 1505. Erasmus finds a manuscript of the already mentioned Lorenzo Valla's critique on the Latin text of the Bible, where the latest exposes some of its inaccuracies. Erasmus would state the following regarding the purity of the Greek source, quote, For we have in Latin only a few small streams and muddy puddles, while they have pure springs and rivers flowing in gold, I see that it is utter madness even to touch with a little finger that branch of theology unless one is also provided with the equipment of Greek." Unquote. Erasmus ended up publishing this manuscript. After all, since the invention of the printing press by Johannes Gutenberg around 1440, the church started to lose the monopoly in book production. Personally, I'm glad someone saved writing after the fall of Rome, but now ideas could no longer be stopped. One decade later, Erasmus publishes his own edition of the Greek Bible and a subsequent translation into Latin. Let's hear what the professor Carlos Ayer has to say about this. Quote, the principal characteristic of the life and thought of Erasmus was his desire to restore Christianity to its primitive purity both in theology and piety. Erasmus sought to achieve this religious renaissance, or rebirth, by means of a fresh exposition of Christ's teachings set against the background of the golden age of the early church. Christianity was to be cleansed from all accretions and distortions. Unquote. Hmm, what does this cleansing mean? Well, the Middle Ages are characterized by a wild and often bizarre human environment. The historian John Huitzinga compiled a few examples which resemble living paintings from Hieronymus Bosch. Quote, the spirit of the 15th century did not differ much from that of the Umbrian peasants, who, about the year 1000, wished to kill St. Romuald, the hermit, in order to make sure of his precious bones, or of the monks of Fossanova, who, after St. Thomas Aquinas had died in their monastery, in their fear of losing the relic, did not shrink from decapitating, boiling, and preserving the body. During the lying state of St. Elizabeth of Hungary in 1251, a crowd of worshippers cut off the hair, the nails, and even the nipples, in 1392, King Charles VI of France, on the occasion of a solemn feast, was seen to distribute ribs of his ancestor, St. Louis." Unquote. Ooh, so this cleansing 
arises from the fact that up until the 16th century, religion was a living tradition and the church would incorporate all sorts of beliefs and superstitions that are not mentioned in the Holy Scriptures. For example, the cult around Virgin Mary, the ceremony of the Mass, and even purgatory are medieval inventions. This last one is particularly interesting for us. The historian Jacques Le Goff brilliantly relates the birth of purgatory in the late Middle Ages with the more widespread use of currency. City markets were growing, and no one had its soul clean from the dirty influence of money. So much so, that if you wanted to go to heaven, you would have to go through an intermediate state of penalties, where you could repent your sins and be cleansed. This seems now ludicrous to us, but the afterlife mattered a great deal at the time. So, a commodity called indulgences emerged. You could reduce your penalty in purgatory and ask for forgiveness by making pilgrimages, acquiring relics with supernatural powers, or even bail altogether by paying a good ransom of money to the church. The already mentioned Professor Carl Zaer wrote a good description on the forms of devotion in Western Christendom. Quote, Since relics were a source of indulgences when properly venerated, the relic mania of the late Middle Ages was also intricately connected with indulgences. This relationship, in turn, helped intensify two types of devotion, the pilgrimage and the relic collection, a practice which, by the late 15th century, had become one of the most widespread forms of devotion in Western Europe. This phenomenon was accompanied by the amassment of relics by certain churches or individuals, primarily with the objective of obtaining astronomical amounts of indulgence. In Halle, for instance, Cardinal Albrecht of Brandenburg had acquired an amazingly precise 39,245,120 years of indulgence through his collection. The Duke of Saxony had an equally impressive collection at Wittenberg. Unquote. Wait. Did he just mention Wittenberg? I think we all heard of a local Augustinian monk who was getting pretty sick of all this sneakiness. Without intention, he kick-started the Protestant Reformation. His name is Martin Luther. Wittenberg, Germany, 1517. Martin Luther posts his 95 theses in his Twitter feed which at the time was the church door. The Catholic Church reacted by saying that these violated community guidelines, and if he wouldn't delete the post and repent, he would be cancelled, which in those days meant having your ass burned at the stake. But what makes Luther different from those who have had similar challenging attitudes before him? This time, some German princes, who were sick of the Pope's interference in their businesses, covered Luther's back and offered protection. Luther's initial intention was not to start a religious reformation, but he also became more uncompromising, as he was forced to defend himself. From the 95 Theses, here is one. Quote, Those priests act ignorantly and wickedly, who, in the case of the dying, reserve canonical penalties for purgatory. Unquote. 
you see now where this is going. There is a well-known aphorism that goes as follows. Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched. But following these events, Martin Luther takes one step further. He picks the Erasmus translation of the Bible from the Greek to Latin and translates it directly into German. The vernacular Bible, as it is called, it's a move of the utmost importance. Adding again the role of the printing press as a new medium, these ideas spread like wildfire. It facilitated everyone's access to the Holy Scriptures and eclipsed the Church as an institution altogether. This means every man his own priest. From now on, the preparation for the afterlife did not require any sacrament or intermediary, but each and everyone would have to deal directly with God Himself. This is very difficult for us to grasp in the 21st century, but we are talking about a radical shift in the perception of reality. The sociologist Max Weber, who wrote the famous book The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, uses the term Entzäuberung to describe this shift in reality. The most often translation of the term into English is the word disenchantment, but the literal meaning of the German concept is demagification. And I think that sums up pretty well the path this story is taking. The Mass is now fake news. Icons and statues are heresies and other sacraments like confession or baptism were now left out. Jesus was poor, hanged out with prostitutes and thieves, and wasn't worried about earthly possessions. Soon afterwards, a group in the fringes of society emerged called Anabaptists, which literally means baptized again since they consider the first baptism a blasphemy. Like some Protestants, they participated in the destruction and burning of statues, but took these ideas much further to the point of abolishing property and preached the end of the world. They wanted to throw the baby together with the bathism water. I hope you can forgive me for this one. Luther could not predict this chain of events, and Erasmus ended up remaining Catholic all his life, considering polarization too high of a price to pay. Here is how Erasmus puts it, quote, And he does not sail badly, who steers a middle course between two several evils, unquote. The opening of this Pandora box eventually reached France. But unlike Germany, France was a more centralized kingdom. How will a powerful king deal with this amount of insurrection and what impact will it have in the hero of our story, John Delary, and his voyage to Brazil? Let's go to France and find out. Amboise, France, 1534. The king Francis I finds a pamphlet attached to the door of his bedchamber, claiming that the Catholic Mass is nonsense. More pamphlets were found all over France in an episode known as the Affair of the Placards. France has been flirting with humanist and Protestant ideas for a while now. Here is how historian Robert J. Knecht describes it. Quote, Though Lutheranism was opposed from the start by theologians of the University of Paris, the King Francis I hesitated 
before adopting a repressive policy. He had difficulty distinguishing between Christian humanism and Lutheranism, but as time elapsed, French Protestants became more radical. Many people were arrested and several were burned at the stake. Among the fugitives from this repression was John Calvin, who eventually settled at Geneva and formulated a Protestant doctrine even further removed from Catholicism than Luther's. He set up a church in Geneva to which religious exiles from France and elsewhere flocked. He also trained missionaries to carry his ideas abroad. In 1555, they began to infiltrate France. Unquote. So here is when the pace of the story accelerates and gets political really fast, in an almost familiar fashion to us, so let's try to get this right. Despite the persecutions, the number of converts grew, not to the point of becoming a majority, but a strategic and motivated faction spread throughout French society, even among the elite. Before the arrival of the religious reformation in France, there were already rivalries among the nobility, which would now in turn accept or repudiate the Protestant worldview accordingly. The situation got polarized. On one side you have the Guise family, with Francis and Charles, Cardinal of Lorraine, champions of Catholicism. On the other, you have the Huguenots, as the Protestants were now called, headed by members of the House of Bourbon, who were princes of royal blood. John de Larry was himself a Huguenot from Geneva, who is going to Brazil with the promise of religious freedom. But now you ask, wait, they were persecuting them and giving them refuge at the same time? Well, it's complicated. The French have been around Brazil right after its official discovery by the Portuguese in the year 1500. Private initiative played a great role in the French enterprise, with merchants being allured by a commodity called Brazil wood, which ultimately gave the country its name and was used to make red cloth. This was quite a profitable business, and some historians call it the red gold. This private initiative would often go against the interests of the French crown, who wanted to keep good relations with the Portuguese, so we can see that in this time, the estate is not an omnipresent force, as the lenses of our own time gives us the illusion to be. This French enterprise was made possible right before the country entered the turmoil of the religious wars, which lasted more or less 40 years. I'll not dive into explaining all of this, but before we go back to Brazil, I'll leave you just with an idea and an episode from the French religious wars, so that we also understand what was in Larry's mind, when years later he finally sat down to write his voyage. The idea was formulated by the historian Natalie Zeman Davis in her article called The Rights of Violence, Religious Riot in 16th Century France. Quote, the occasion for most religious violence was during the time of religious worship or ritual, and in the space which one or both groups were using for sacred purposes. Much of the religious riot is time to ritual, and the violence seems often a curious continuation of the rite. Now with this in mind, the last thing Paris needed was a ritual with the magnitude of a royal wedding. Let's stretch this even further and imagine that this wedding was between a Catholic princess 
and a Protestant prince, and everyone is in town, closed within city walls. Those who watched Game of Thrones might start having a déjà vu. Paris, Notre Dame, 1572. Historian Robert J. Knecht shall do the honors. Quote, Catherine de' Medici took advantage of a temporary peace to arrange a marriage between her daughter, Margaret, and the young Huguenot leader, Henry of Navarre. Her plan may have been to heal the religious division of the nation. Unquote. Let's hear the description made by the bride herself, Princess Margaret. Quote, the prince was received with every honor by King Charles and the whole court, and, in a few days after his arrival, our marriage was solemnized with all possible magnificence. The whole court was richly attired, all which you can better conceive that I am able to express. For my part, I was set out in the most royal manner, and blazed in diamonds. A platform had been raised, some height from the ground, which led from the bishop's palace to the church of Notre Dame. It was hung with cloth of gold, and below it stood the people in throngs to view the procession, stifling with heat." Unquote. Now, a Protestant account of the wedding by François Hotman. Quote, when the day came, the marriage was with royal pomp solemnized before the great church of Paris, and a certain form of words, so framed as disagreed with the religion of neither side, was by the king's commandment pronounced by the Cardinal of Bourbon. The matrimony was celebrated with great joy of the king and all good men. The bride was with great train and pomp led into the church to hear mass. And in the meantime, the bridegroom, who disliked these ceremonies, together with Coligny, another noble man of the same religion, walked out of the church waiting for the bride's return. So great was the preparation of plays, so great was the magnificence of banquets and shows, and the king so earnestly bent to those matters, that he had no leisure, not only for weighty affairs, but also not so much as to take his natural sleep. For in the French court, dancings, maskings, stage plays are commonly used in the nighttime. So great also is the familiarity of men and the women of the Queen Mother's Catherine de' Medici's train, and so great liberty of sporting, entertainment and talking together as to foreign nations may seem incredible, and be thought of all honest persons, a matter not very convenient for preservation of noble young ladies' chastity." Unquote. This same author calls the French court a common sink of Italy. However, this exhilarating dream starts fading. On the way to his residence from the Louvre, the Protestant leader Coligny gets shot. He got only slightly wounded, but from here on, all hell breaks loose. Professor Barbara Diffendorf sets up the stage for one of the bloodiest massacres in European history. Quote, we will never know for certain who was behind the attack on Coligny, 
In the end, however, the question of who was responsible for this initial shot pales before the chain of events it touched off. As word of the attack spread around the city, the Huguenots' angry response was thought to portend a Protestant uprising. A rumor that Protestant troops waited outside the city for the signal to seize the royal family and avenge themselves against their enemies drove tensions to a fever pitch. Although there was no truth to the story, it appears to have been widely believed, even in the highest circles." Unquote. The Venetian diplomat Giovanni Michel writes the following on his report to the Venetian Senate. Quote, Late Saturday night, just before the dawn of St. Bartholomew's Day, the massacre or slaughter was carried out. The French say the king ordered it. How wild and terrifying it was in Paris, which has a larger population than any other city in Europe, no one can imagine. The slaughter went on past Sunday for two or three more days. The massacre showed how powerfully religion can affect men's minds. On every street, one could see the barbarous sight of men cold-bloodedly outraging others of their own people. And not just men who had never done them any harm, but in most cases, people they knew to be their neighbors and even their relatives. If one man hated another because of some argument or lawsuit, all he had to say was, this man is a Huguenot, and he was immediately killed. That happened to many Catholics. Unquote. A Protestant minister named Simon Goulard states the following, quote, The streets were covered with dead bodies, the river tinted with blood, and the doors and gates to the king's palace painted with the same color. But the killers were not yet sated. Unquote. That was heavy. This is also the story on how the word massacre made its entrance from the French to the English lexicon. With this whole baggage in mind, how will the French colony in Brazil develop? Protestants were promised religious freedom, but the creation of a Huguenot paradise was not the reason for the foundation of the settlement. The governor and founder of the colony, Vilgaño, the villain of this story, at least according to Larry, brought a ship of mostly convicts with him, and he was, let's say, religiously volatile. The arrival of Larry to Brazil is in 1557, when France is on the brink of its first religious war. Returning the pen to Larry, it's time to go back to Brazil. Quote, When our ships were in harbor in the Bay of Guanabara, near the mainland, each of us put his baggage in the boats and we went ashore to the island and fort called Coligny. We went to find Vilgagnon, who was waiting for us and whom we each greeted in turn. He, for his part, with an open countenance, or so it seemed, embracing us and clasping us around the neck. 
warmly welcomed us. Upon our arrival, those are the first words that Vilgagnon spoke. Quote, My children, for I wish to be your father, just as Jesus Christ, when he was in this world, did nothing for himself, but rather did everything for us. So too, everything that I mean to do here is for you and for all those who come here with the same purpose as yours. For I intend to make here a refuge for the poor faithful who are persecuted in France, in Spain and elsewhere across the sea, so that, fearing neither king nor emperor nor any other potentates, they can serve God purely according to his will." Unquote. The next day and the following ones, Villegagnon took no notice of our being weakened by the sea passage, nor of the heat of the climate, nor of the little nourishment that we had, which was two cups of hard flour a day for each of us. Even though he was not constrained by necessity, he made us howl earth and stones into his fort, indeed, at such a rate that given our discomforts and infirmities, in compelling us to sustain that labor from daybreak until night, he seemed to be treating us a little more roughly than might be warranted by the duty of a good father toward his children. In brief, just as an ancient writer has said that it is hard to feign virtue for long, it became evident that there was only ostentation in his deeds, and that although he had publicly abjured papistry, they nevertheless had more desire to debate and contest than to learn and profit. Thus, they were not slow to stir up disputes concerning doctrine. Villegagnon declared openly that he had changed the opinion concerning Calvin. He said that Calvin was a wicked heretic who had strayed from the faith. From then on, it was a hostile face that he turned to us. To conclude, the dissimulation of Villegagnon was so clearly revealed to us that, as the saying goes, we knew very well what stuff he was made of. If you ask what caused the revolt, some of our people maintained that the Cardinal of Lorraine and others had written him from France and in their letters had reproved him very harshly for leaving the Roman Catholic religion, so that Villegagnon suddenly changed his opinion out of fear. Whatever the case may be, I can assert that at the time of his revolt he became so moody as if his conscience had become a torturer, swearing every other minute that he would break the head, arms and legs of the first who irked him, that no one dared come into his presence. While we are on the subject, I will recount the cruelty that I saw him exercise at the time on a Frenchman named La Roche, whom he held in chains. He made him lie flat on the ground, and he had him beaten on the belly by one of his surgeons, with great blows of a cudgel, so hard that the breath was nearly gone from him. Likewise, some other Frenchmen whom he kept chained for the same offense as La Roche's, that is, they had conspired to throw him into the sea on account of his ill-treatment of them before our arrival, for he had worked them harder than galley slaves. Some of them, carpenters by trade, abandoned him, 
preferring to go over to the mainland and join the savages. Thus it is that after we had stayed about eight months on the island and fort of Kalingi, which we helped to build, we withdrew and went over to the mainland. Unquote. I find it staggering how even when facing death, they just couldn't get along. The French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss wrote a paragraph that humorously sums up the whole story until this point. Quote, Villegagnon was converted through his contact with Protestants and he appealed to Calvin to send missionaries who would enlighten him about his new faith. So it was that, in 1556, an expedition was sent out, of which Larry was a member. At this point, history took such a strange turn that I'm surprised no novelist or scenario writer has as yet made use of it. What a marvelous film it would make, a handful of Frenchmen, after braving every imaginable danger in their attempt to escape from religious strife in France and establish a new community where Catholic and Protestant alike could live under a free and tolerant government, now found themselves alone on a continent as unfamiliar as a different planet, knowing nothing of the geographical circumstances or the natives, incapable of growing food to keep themselves alive, striken with sickness and disease and depending for all their needs on an extremely hostile community whose language they could not understand and were caught in a trap of their own making. The Protestants tried to convert Catholics and vice versa. Instead of working for survival, they spent weeks in foolish discussions. How should the Last Supper be interpreted? Should the wine be diluted with water before consecration? The Eucharist and the question of baptism gave rise to veritable theological tournaments after which Villegagnon was either converted or returned to shy former faith." Unquote. Leaving the fort and venturing into the mainland, Larry spent the following year living amongst the native tribe called Tupinamba in the region of Guanabara. After this leap into the unknown, the hero of our story has to work his way through uncharted territory where the anxiety of dealing with the unexpected provides passages in which the bizarre faces the delightful. We start with his first days among the natives and move on to a description of the Tupinamba and their surroundings. Quote, Although the Tupinamba receive very humanely the friendly strangers who go to visit them, nevertheless the Frenchmen and others from over here who do not understand their language find themselves at first marvelously disconcerted in their midst. I immediately found myself surrounded by savages who were asking me, what is your name, what is your name? One of them took my hat, which he put on his head, another my sword and my belt, which he put around his naked body. Not only did I think that I had lost everything, but I didn't know what would become of me. After they have played around a little with one's belongings, they carry them all back and return them to their owners. Certain Normans, like my interpreter, having escaped from a shipwreck long before Villegagnon's arrival in that country, had remained among the savages where, having no fear of God, they lived in wantonness with the women and girls 
I have seen some who had children by them already four or five years old. That same day, the interpreter and I were going on to spend the night in another village called Uramiri. Arriving at sunset, we found the savages dancing and finishing up the Kaoin. Hey, it's me. The Kaoin is the alcoholic beverage of the natives. Larry shall explain later on what it consists. In this context, Kaoin is applied as a synonym of celebration. Of a prisoner whom they had killed only six hours earlier, the pieces of whom we saw on the Bukan. Hey, it's me again. Bukan is the native's version of barbecue, so Larry just saw parts of human bodies on the barbecue while the natives were partying. Do not ask whether, with this beginning, I was astonished to see such a tragedy. The interpreter, without saying a single word to me, nor warning me of anything, went over to the big crowd of dancers and left me there with some of the savages. So after eating a little root flour and other food they had offered us, I, weary and asking only for rest, lay down in the cotton bed I had been sitting on. Not only was I kept awake by the noise that the savages made, dancing and whistling all night while eating their prisoner, but what is more, one of them approached me with the victim's food in hand, cooked and bukan, asking me, as I learned later, if I wanted to eat some of it. Indeed, I thought that by brandishing the human flesh he was eating, he was threatening me and wanted to make me understand that I was about to be similarly dealt with. If I had seen some exit through which to flee, I would not have hesitated, but seeing myself surrounded on all sides by those whose intentions I failed to understand, I firmly expected shortly to be eaten, and all night I called on God in my heart. I will leave it to those who understand what I am saying and who put themselves in my place to consider whether that night seemed long. The interpreter on the next day told me that I should have no fear and that it wasn't us they were after. When he recounted the whole business of the savages, who, rejoicing at my coming and thinking to show me affection, had not budged from my side all night, they said that they had sensed that I had been somewhat frightened of them, for which they were very sorry. My one consolation was the hoot of laughter they sent up, for they are great jokers at having, without meaning to, given me such a scare. The savages of America who live in Brazil, called Tupinamba, are not taller, fatter or smaller in stature than we Europeans are. Their bodies are neither monstrous nor prodigious with respect to ours. In fact, they are stronger, more robust and well filled out, more nimble, less subject to disease. There are almost none among them who are lame, one-eyed, deformed or disfigured. Now this next thing is no less strange than difficult to believe for those who have not seen them. The men, women and children do not hide any parts of their bodies. What is more, without any sign of bashfulness or shame, they habitually live and go about their affairs as naked as they come out of their mother's womb. Their wives and daughters, whom they call Kuanyam, and in some parts, since the arrival of the Portuguese, Maria, 
also share with them, the men, the practice of pulling out all body hair, as well as the eyelashes and eyebrows. They do not follow the man's custom regarding the hair of the head, for while the later shave their hair in front and clip it in the back, the women do not only let it grow long, but also, like the woman over here, comb and wash it very carefully. They differ also from the man in that they do not slit their lips or cheeks, and so they wear no stones in their faces. But as for their ears, they have them pierced in so extreme of a fashion for wearing pendants that when they are removed, you could easily pass a finger through the holes. But among the things doubly strange and truly marvelous that I observed in these Brazilian women, there is this. Although they do not paint their bodies, arms, tights and legs as often as the men do, and do not cover themselves with feathers or with anything else that grows in their land, still, although we tried several times to give them dresses, it has never been in our power to make them wear clothes. As a pretext to exempt themselves from wearing clothes and to remain always naked, they would cite their custom, which is this. Whenever they come upon springs and clear rivers, crouching on the edge or else getting in, they throw water on their heads with both hands and wash themselves and plunge in with their whole bodies like ducks. On some days, more than a dozen times, and they said that it was too much trouble to get undressed so often. Is that not a fine and pertinent excuse? But whatever it may be, you have to accept it, for to contest it further with them would be in vain, and you would gain nothing by it. I must respond to those who think that the frequenting of these naked savages, and especially of the women, arouses wanton desire and lust. To report what was commonly perceived at the time, this crude nakedness in such a woman is much less alluring than one might expect. And I maintain that the elaborate attire, paint, wigs, curled hair, great ruffs, farthingales, robs upon robs and all the infinity of trifles with which the women and girls over here disguise themselves and of which they never have enough are beyond comparison the cause of more ills than the ordinary nakedness of the savage women, whose natural beauty is by no means inferior to that of the others. One must note that although they do not have wheat or wine in their country, nevertheless, as I have seen and experienced, they dine and feast well without bread or wine. After the women have cut up the roots, they let the pieces boil in water in great earthen vessels. When that is done, several of the women, crouched around these great vessels, take from them these little round pieces of softened root. First, they chew them and twist them around in their mouths without swallowing them. Then they take the pieces in their hands and put them into other earthen vessels which are already on the fire. After it has clarified and fermented, they cover the vessels and leave the beverage until people want to drink it. I repeat expressly that it is the women who perform this task. The men hold the firm opinion that if they were to chew the roots or the millet to make this beverage, 
it would be no good. The savages call this beverage Gawin. The men dance past the women, one after the other, and the women, serving as cupbearers, present to each man one of these big cupfuls, not forgetting to quaff it themselves, and neither one nor the other ever fails to toss it off in one gulp. But do you know how many times? Until the vessels, even if there were a hundred, are all empty, and there is not a single drop of Kawin remaining. And in fact, I have seen them go three days and three nights without ceasing to drink. And even after they were so sated and drunk that they could take no more, when they had vomited, they went at it again, more violently than before. I have no doubt that some of those who have heard what I have said concerning the chewing and twisting around of the roots and millet in the mouths of the savage women will have been nauseated and will have spit. To allay this disgust, I entreat them to remember what we do when we make wine over here. Let them consider merely this. In the very places where the good wines grow, at the time of grape harvest, the winemakers get into the tubs and vats, and with their feet, and sometimes with their shoes, they tread the grapes. Many things go on which are hardly more pleasing than this custom of chewing among the American women. If thereupon someone says, yes, but as it ferments in the vats, the wine expels all the filth, I reply that our cowin is purged the same way, and that therefore, on this point, the one custom is as good as the other. Concerning the four-footed animals, I will say first of all, that in general, and without exception, there is not a single one in that land of Brazil that is in all respects exactly like any of ours. The first and most common one, the tapir, is half cow and half donkey. There is a great abundance of those little black monkeys. It is quite a sport to hear them calling out and crashing around up in the trees. When these monkeys are first caught, they are so wild that they bite your fingers. A strange animal, which the savages call hai, is of the size of a big spaniel, with a face rather like a monkey's approaching the human. It is true, nevertheless, that his claws are so sharp that our Tupinamba, who are always naked, do not take much pleasure in playing with him. Now this might sound like a tall tale, but I have heard that no man has ever seen this animal eat. Our Americans also catch lizards. I must add that when you have skinned, gutted and cleaned them and cooked them thoroughly, it is one of the best kinds of meat that I have eaten in America. It is true that at the beginning I was horrified at the notion, but after I had tasted it, as far as meat was concerned, I sang the praises of nothing but lizards. One day, two other Frenchmen and I were rash enough to set forth to visit the region without the savages whom we customarily had along as guides. Having lost our way in the woods as we were going along a deep valley, we heard the sound of a beast making its way toward us. 
Thinking that it was some savage, we continued on our path without disquiet and thought no more about it. But suddenly, on our right, we saw a lizard, much bigger than a man's body, with one of its front feet lifted, its head raised high and its eyes gleaming. It stopped short to look at us. Seeing him, and fearing that if we took flight he would outrun us and, having caught us, would swallow us up and devour us, we looked at each other stunned and remained stock still. This monstrous and terrible lizard opened its maw. It was breathing so hard that we could easily hear it. After it had stared at us for about a quarter of an hour, it suddenly turned around, crashing through the leaves and branches where it passed. As for us, we had had such a scare that we had no desire to run after it, praising God from delivering us from this danger. We went on our way. It has occurred to me since, in accord with the opinion of those who say that the lizard takes delight in the human face, that this one had taken as much pleasure in looking at us as we had felt fear in gazing upon it. I come now to the birds. As for the plumage, you could hardly believe that there exist in the whole world birds of more marvelous beauty. One, which the savages call Arat, has wing and tail feathers about a foot and a half long, one half of each feather as red as fine scarlet, and the other half a sparkling sky blue. When this bird is in the sunlight, where it is ordinarily to be seen, no eye can weary of gazing upon it. There are three or four kinds of parrots in the land of Brazil. Apart from the beauty of the plumage, these are the ones that speak the best when they are trained. In fact, an interpreter gave me as a gift one that he had kept for three years. It pronounced both the savage and the French languages so well that if you don't see it, you would have thought you were hearing the voice of a man. But I have something still more amazing to tell about the parrot of this kind, trained by a savage woman in a village two leagues from our island. For it was as if this bird had the intelligence to understand and distinguish what was said by the woman who had raised him. When we passed by there, she would say to us in her language, If you will give me a comb or a mirror, I will make my parrot sing and dance now in your presence. If thereupon, for our amusement, we gave her what she was asking, as soon as she had spoken to that bird, he began not only to dance, but also to prattle, whistle, and imitate the savages going to war. Our Tupinamba follow the custom of all the other savages who live in that fourth part of the world. That is, they wage deadly warfare against a number of nations of their region. However, their closest and principal enemies are those whom they call Margaya and their allies, the Portuguese, whom they call Peru. Reciprocally, 
the Margaya are hostile not only to the Tupinamba, but also to the French, their confederates. But these barbarians do not wage war to win countries and lands from each other, for each has more than he needs. As they themselves confess, they are impelled by no other passion than that of avenging, each for his side, his own kinsmen and friends who in the past have been seized and eaten. Their hatred is so inveterate that they can never be reconciled. Now according to what I've seen, here is how our Tupinamba assemble to go to war. Although they have neither kings nor princes, and consequently are all almost equally great lords, nevertheless, nature has taught them that the old man, because of their experience, must be respected, and thus the elders of each village are generally obeyed. They exhort the others something like this. What? Have our ancestors, who have not only so valiantly fought, but also subjugated, killed and eaten so many enemies, left us their example so that we should stay at home, effeminate and cowardly of heart? Will our cowardice give the Margaya and the Peros, those two worthless allied nations, the occasion to attack us first? No, no, my countrymen, strong and valiant young man, we must not do this. We must prepare ourselves to go find them and either let ourselves all be killed and eaten, or avenge our own. Each of the hearers, having listened attentively and not missed a word, would feel heartened and emboldened. Sending word to each other from village to village, they would directly assemble in haste and meet in great numbers in the assigned place. When the two armies come to confront each other, the combat is cruel and terrible beyond belief, which I can vouch for, having myself been a spectator. For another Frenchman and I, out of curiosity and taking our chances of being captured and either killed on the spot or eaten by the Margaya, once went to accompany about 4,000 of our savages in a battle that took place on the seashore. For as soon as they were within two or three hundred feet from each other, they saluted with great volleys of arrows, and you would have seen an infinity of them soar through the air as thick as flies. If some were hit, as several were, they tore the arrows out of their bodies with the marvelous courage, breaking them and like mad dogs biting the pieces. We saw these barbarians fight with such a fury that madmen could not do worse. It must be noted here that these Americans are so relentless in their wars that as long as they can move arms and legs, they fight on unceasingly, neither retreating nor turning their backs. If you now ask, and you and your companion, what were you doing during that skirmish? Weren't you fighting along with the savages? To make no pretense about it, I answer that contenting ourselves with having committed that first folly of venturing forth with these barbarians, we stayed in the rear guard, where we merely had the pastime of judging the blows. I will say this about it, however. Although I have often seen men of arms over here, both on foot and on horseback, 
Nevertheless, I have never taken so much pleasure in seeing the infantry as I delighted then in seeing those savages do battle. There was not only the entertainment of seeing them leap, whistle and wield their swords so dexterously, it was also a marvel to see so many arrows fly in the air and sparkle in the sunbeams with their grand featherings of red, blue, green, scarlet and other colors and so many robes, headdresses, bracelets and other adornments of these natural feathers with which the savages were arrayed. After this battle had gone on for about three hours and on both sides there were many dead and wounded lying on the field, our Tupinamba finally carried the victory. It remains now to be seen just how prisoners of war are treated in the hands of their enemies. As soon as they arrive, not only are they fed with the best food that can be found, but also the men are given wives. After being fattened like pigs, the captives are finally slain and eaten with the following ceremonies. First, men, women and children arrive from all directions and begin to dance and to drink throughout the morning. Even he who is not unaware that this gathering is on his account and that in a short time he will be clubbed to death is by no means downcast. On the contrary, leaping about and drinking he will be one of the merriest ones there. However, after he has sung and caroused for six or seven hours, two or three of the most respected in the throng will take hold of him and bind him with ropes. Without offering any resistance, he will be walked for a little while through the village and displayed as a trophy. The captive will boast of his past feats of prowess, saying to those who hold him bound, I myself who am valiant, first bound and tied your kinsman. Then, exalting himself more and more, he will turn from side to side and say to one, I have eaten your father, I have struck down and bukan your brothers. Of you Tupinamba that I have taken in war, I have eaten so many men and women and even children that I could not tell the number, and do not doubt that to avenge my death, the Margaya, whose nation I belong to, will hereafter eat as many of you as they can catch. He who is there ready to perform the slaughter lifts his wooden club with both hands and brings down the rounded end of it with such force on the head of the poor prisoner that I have seen some who fell stone dead on the first blow without ever after moving an arm or a leg. After that, the one who owned the prisoner, with as many neighbors of his own choosing as he pleases, will take this poor body, cleave it and immediately cut it into pieces. No butcher in this country could more quickly dismember a sheep. Now after the pieces of the body, including the guts, have been thoroughly cleaned, they are immediately put on the bukans. While it all cooks according to their style, the old women are all assembled beside to receive the fat that drips off and exhort the man to do what it takes to provide them always with such meat. Licking their fingers, they say, Iguatu, that is, it is good. So when they presented us with the human flesh of their prisoners to eat, if we refused 
as I and many other of us have always done, not having, thank God, forgotten ourselves to that point, it seemed to them that we were not showing proper loyalty. Unquote. Jean de Lary goes on a couple more tales describing the cruelty of the Tupinamba towards their enemies. Here is one which is particularly touching. Quote, Another time there was a prisoner, a handsome and powerful young man, shackled in irons that our savages had obtained from the Christians. He approached us and said in Portuguese that he had been in Portugal and had become a Christian. He had been baptized and was called Antony. So although he was of the Margayan nation, by visiting other countries he had shed some of his barbarian ways and he let us know that he greatly desired to be delivered out of the hands of his enemies. Aside from its being our duty to rescue as many as we could, when we heard these words Christian and Antony, we were especially moved to compassion for him. So one of our company, who understood Spanish, a locksmith by trade, told him that the very next day he would bring him a file to remove his irons. We were to distract the others with conversation while he, as soon as he was free of the irons, was to go to hide on the seashore, where we would, without fail, pick him up in our boat as we left the island. The poor man, rejoicing at the means of escape that we were offering him, thanked us and promised to do everything just as we had advised him. But the rabble of savages, although they had not heard this conversation, nonetheless suspected that we intended to take him out of their hands. As soon as we have left their village, they quickly called together only their closest neighbors to be spectators of their prisoner's death, and he was immediately slain by them. The next day, Pretending to go fetch flour and other supplies, we went back to this village with the file and asked the savages the whereabout of the prisoner whom we had seen the previous day. Some of them took us to the house where we saw the pieces of the body of poor Anthony on the Bukan. They knew they had tricked us and they showed us his head with great peals of laughter. I could add similar examples of the cruelty of the savages toward their enemies. But it seems to me that what I have said is enough to horrify you, indeed to make your hair stand on end. Nevertheless, one need not to go beyond one's own country, nor as far as America, to see such monstrous and prodigious things. What of France? During the bloody tragedy that began in Paris on the 24th of August, 1572, among other acts horrible to recount, which were perpetrated at the time throughout the kingdom, the fat of human bodies was it not publicly sold to the highest bidder. The livers, hearts, and other parts of these bodies, were they not eaten by the furious murderers of whom hell itself stands in horror? There are thousands alive today who beheld these things never before heard among people anywhere, and the books about them, printed long since, will bear witness for posterity. Although 
the adage of Cicero is held by all as an indubitable maxim, that there is no people so brutish nor any nation so barbarous and savage as to have no feeling that there is a divinity. Nonetheless, when I consider closely our Tupinamba of America, I find myself somewhat at a loss in applying it to them. They neither confess nor worship any gods, either of heaven nor of earth, consequently, having no rites nor designated places of assembly, they do not pray by any religious form to anything whatsoever, either in public or in private. They know nothing of writing, either sacred or secular. Indeed, they have no kind of characters that signify anything at all. When I was first in their country, in order to learn their language, I wrote a number of sentences, which I then read aloud to them. Thinking that this was some kind of witchcraft, they said to each other, Is it not a marvel that this fellow, who yesterday could not have said a single word in our language, can now be understood by us by virtue of that paper? In our conversations with them, when it seemed the right moment, we would say to them that we believed in a sole and sovereign God, creator of the world, who, as he made heaven and earth with all the things contained therein, also now governs and dispossesses of the whole as it pleases him to do. Hearing us hold forth on this subject, they would look at each other saying, Te! and be struck with amazement. When they hear thunder, which they call Tupan, they are much afraid. Adapting ourselves to their crudeness, we would seize the occasion to say to them that this was the very God of whom we were speaking, who, to show his grandeur and power, made heavens and earth tremble. Their resolution and response was that, since he frightened them in that way, he was good for nothing. Still, let me begin by declaring what light I perceive, that they do nevertheless possess in the midst of the dense shadows of ignorance where they lie in bondage. In the first place, not only do they believe in the immortality of souls, but they also firmly maintain that after the death of bodies, the souls of those who have lived virtuously, that is, according to them, those who have properly avenged themselves and have eaten many of their enemies, go off behind the high mountains where they dance in beautiful gardens. While on the contrary, the souls of the effeminate and worthless, who have neglected the defense of their fatherland, go with Aigan, for so they call the devil in their language, by whom, they say, these unworthy ones are incessantly tormented. And here it must be noted that these poor people are so afflicted throughout their lives with this evil spirit that when the torment comes upon them, they cry out suddenly, as if in a fit of madness, Alas, defend us from Aignan, who is beating us. In fact, they would say that they actually saw him, sometimes in the guise of a beast or bird or in some other strange form. They marveled to see that we were not assaulted by him. When we told them that such exemption came from the God of whom we spoke so often and who, being incomparably stronger than Aignan, kept him from molesting or harming us, 
It sometimes happened that, feeling hard-pressed, they would promise to believe in him. But, as the proverb says, when the danger is past, we mock the saint. If one examines closely what I have already touched on, that is, that they would desire to live in repose, but are nevertheless forced, when they hear thunder, to tremble under a power they cannot resist, one can gather that Cicero's adage is verified through them after all. Indeed, there is no people that does not have the feeling that there is a divinity. Another Frenchman named Jacques Rousseau and I, with an interpreter, were traveling through the country and had spent one night in a village named Cotiva. The next morning, very early, as we were about to move on, we saw the savages from the neighboring regions arriving from all directions. Five or six hundred were soon assembled in a large open place. We stopped and turned back to find out the purpose of this assembly and saw them suddenly separate into three groups. All men in one house, the women in another and the children in a third. Seeing ten or twelve of these Caribe gentlemen who had joined the men and suspecting that they would do something extraordinary, I urged my companions to stay with me to see this mystery, and they agreed. The Caribes ordered us to confine ourselves to the house where the women were. While we were having our breakfast with no idea as yet of what they intended to do, we began to hear in the man's house a very low murmur. Upon hearing this, the women, about two hundred of them, all stood up and clustered together, listening intently. The men, little by little, raised their voices and were distinctly heard singing all together and repeating this syllable. <laughs> the women, to our amazement, answered them from their side with a trembling voice. They let out such cries for more than a quarter of an hour that as we watched them we were utterly disconcerted. Not only did they howl, but also, leaping violently into the air, they made their breasts shake and they foamed at the mouth. In fact, some fell in a dead faint. I can only believe that the devil entered their body and that they fell into a fit of madness. However, after these chaotic noises and howls had ended and the man had taken a short pause, we heard them once again singing and making their voices resound in a harmony so marvelous that you would hardly have needed to ask whether, since I was now somewhat easier in my mind at hearing such sweet and gracious sounds, I wished to watch them from nearby. When I was about to go out and draw near, the women held me back. Also, our interpreter said that in the six or seven years that he had been in that country, he had never dared to present among the savages at such ceremony. For a moment I was undecided. However, I ventured forth. I drew near the place where I heard the chanting. Emboldened by my example, two Frenchmen drew near without hindrance or difficulty, and we all three entered the house. Seeing that our entering did not disturb the savages, 
We quietly withdrew into a corner to drink in the scene. Three or four of these caribes, richly decked in robes, headdresses and bracelets made of beautiful natural feathers of various colors, holding in each hand a maraca or rattle made of a fruit bigger than an ostrich egg, so that the spirit might thereafter speak through these rattles. They made them sound incessantly. noticed that they would frequently take a wooden cane, four or five feet long, at the end of which was burning some of the dried herb, turning and blowing the smoke in all directions on the other savages. They would say to them, so that you may overcome your enemies, receive all of you the spirit of strength. These ceremonies went on for nearly two hours with the five or six hundred men dancing and singing incessantly. Such was their melody that those who have not heard them would never believe that they could make such harmony. I stood there transported with delight. Whenever I remember it, my heart trembles, and it seems their voices are still in my ears. Mingled in their songs, there was mention of waters that had once swelled so high above their bounds that all the earth was covered, and all the people in the world were drowned, except for their ancestors, who took refuge in the highest trees. This last point, which is the closest they get from the Holy Scriptures, I have heard them reiterate several times since, and, indeed, it is likely that from father to son they have heard something of the universal flood that occurred in the time of Noah. In keeping with the habit of man, which is always to corrupt the truth and turn it into falsehood, together with what we have already seen, that, being altogether deprived from writing, it is hard for them to retain things in their purity, they have added this fable that their ancestors took refuge in the trees." Unquote. Well, the fact that they have a flood myth is astonishing. Somewhere in this voyage, Larry tells about a conversation he had with an old Tupi man. And since this chapter is more focused on religion and how they deal or perceive reality, the following story gives us a wonderful insight into the Tupinamba's minds. Quote, our Tupinamba are astonished to see the French and others from distant countries go to so much trouble to get their Brazil wood. On one occasion, one of their old men questioned me about it. What does it mean that you mares and peros, that is, French and Portuguese, come from so far for wood to warm yourselves? Is there none in your own country? I answered him, yes, and in great quantity but not of the same kinds as theirs, nor any Brazil wood, which we did not burn, as he thought, but rather carried away to make dye, just as they themselves did to redden their cotton cord, feathers, and other articles. He immediately came back to me. Very well. But do you need so much of it? Yes, I said, for there is a merchant in our country who has more red cloth 
and even more knives, scissors, mirrors, and other merchandise that you have ever seen over here. One such merchant alone will buy all the wood that several ships bring back from your country. Ha! <laughs> said the savage. You are telling me of wonders. Then, having thought over what I had said to him, he questioned me further and said, But this man of whom you speak, who is so rich, does he ever die? Certainly he does, I said, just as others do. At that, since they are great discoursers and pursue a subject out to the end, he asked me, And when he is dead, to whom belong all the goods that he leaves behind? To his children, if he has any, and if there are none, to his brothers, sisters, or nearest kinsmen. Truly, said my elder, who, as you will judge, was no dullard. I see now that you mares, that is, Frenchmen, are great fools. Must you labor so hard to cross the sea, on which, as you told us, you endured so many hardships, just to amass riches for your children, or for those who will survive you? Will not the earth that nourishes you suffice to nourish them? We have kinsmen and children whom, as you see, we love and cherish. But because we are certain that after our death the earth which has nourished us will nourish them, we rest easy and do not trouble ourselves further about it. This nation, which we consider so barbarous, charitably mocks those who cross the sea at the risk of their lives to go seek Brazil wood in order to get rich. To our great shame, and to justify our savages in the little care that they have for the things of this world, I had to make this digression in their favor. So that saying goodbye here to America, I confess for myself that although I have always loved my country, and do even now, still, seeing the little, next to none at all, of fidelity that is left in France, and, what is worse, the disloyalties of people toward each other, in short, since our whole situation is Italianized, and consists only in dissimulation and words without effect, I often regret that I am not among the savages, in whom I have known more frankness than in many over here, who, for their condemnation, bear the title of Christian. Since Vilgagnon acted as if he were viceroy of that country, None of the French seamen who were sailing there would have dared undertake anything against his will. While the ship was at anchor in the Bay of Janeiro, where it was being loaded for the return voyage, 
Vilgagnon not only sent us a permit to leave, signed by his hand, he also wrote a letter to the ship's master, saying that he had no objection. For, he said deceitfully, just as I rejoiced at their coming, thinking that I had found what I was looking for, so too, since they do not agree with me, I am glad of their departure. The ship in which we returned was a merchant ship of only middling size. Its master, Martin Bedouin of Le Havre, had only about 25 sailors, and there were 15 in our company, making it all 45 people on board. The same day, the 4th of January, we weighed at anchor, and committing ourselves to the protection of God, we set forth on that great and tempestuous ocean sea. The wind was keeping us from getting away from land. We had been afloat seven or eight days and had been tossed from one side to the other when, at around midnight, we became aware of a much greater danger. The sailors on watch, going as usual to pump out the water, found that it was impossible for them to drain it. When they were very wary of pumping, the master's mate, looking to see where it was coming from, went down through the hatch and found the ship leaking in several places. It was already so full of water, which was still coming in full force, that it could not be steered, and one could feel it sinking little by little. The carpenter looked over the ship carefully and said that it was too old and warm-eaten for the voyage we were undertaking. His advice was that we return to our place of departure and wait there for another ship from France, or else that we build a new one. However, the ship's master objected that if he returned to land, his sailors would leave him, and that he preferred to hazard his life rather than to lose his ship and his merchandise. The master's mate argued that, besides the dangers of the navigation, he could foresee that we would be a long time on the sea and that there was not enough food in the ship to feed all the passengers. At that point, six of us, considering the possibilities of shipwreck on the one hand and famine on the other, resolved to return to the land of the savages which was only nine or ten leagues away. To put this plan into effect, we quickly put our belongings into the boat. As we were taking leave of our companions, one of them, full of regret at my departure and impelled by a particular feeling of friendship, put out his hand as I was in the boat and said, I beg you to stay with us, for even if we cannot get to France, Still, there is more hope of safety on the coast of Peru or on some island than returning to Vilgagnon, who, as you very well know, will never leave you at peace over here. Upon these remonstrances, and seeing that there was no time for more discussion, I left some of my belongings behind me in the boat and hastily climbed back into the ship. As for the five others, they took leave of us with tears and return to the land of Brazil. Thus, 
having made ready and put our sails to the wind, we again set forth on the sea in this wretched old ship that we thought would be our sepulchre, more expecting to die in it than to live. At the end of the month of February, we arrived at a point three degrees from the Ecuador. Almost three weeks had passed, and we had not yet completed even a third of our voyage. Our food supply was rapidly diminishing. There was a quarrel and a mutual spite between our master's mate and our pilot. The pilot, who was on watch, had the sails high and fully spread. Failing to notice the approach of a whirlwind, he allowed it to smash into the sails, which he should have lowered earlier, that we were very nearly capsized. After the rigging and the sheets of the big sail had been cut, the vessel righted itself little by little, but we knew that we had escaped by the skin of our teeth. And yet, the two who had been the cause of this danger were by no means ready to be reconciled. On the contrary, as soon as the peril had passed, their way of giving thanks was to seize and pummel each other so hard that we thought they would kill each other. Moreover, we soon entered into more danger. A few days later, when the sea was calm, the carpenter and some of the other seamen, thinking to relieve us from the day and night labor at the pumps, went to look around in the bottom of the ship to find the hole through which the water was entering. It happened that as they were working on one that they thought they could mend, a piece of wood came off. The water came in through the hole with such force that it made the seamen flee the spot and abandon the carpenter. When they reached the upper deck, they were incapable of telling us what had happened, except to cry, We are lost! We are lost! At this point, the captain, the master and the pilot, seeing the obvious danger, decided to abandon the ship and escape in the boat. The pilot, fearing that the boat would be overloaded by the great number of passengers who would want to throw themselves into it, got in it himself with a great cutlass in his fist and said that he would cut off the arms of the first person who made a move to board it. We were as resolved to death as to life. Nevertheless, our carpenter, a stout-hearted little fellow, had not abandoned the bottom of the ship like the others. In that state, he cried out to bring him clothing cotton beds and other things that would keep the water from entering, while he put back the piece that had come loose. This being done, we were saved by his efforts. Because we were afraid of meeting up with pirates, we leveled four or five pieces of such artillery as we had in our ship. Also to defend ourselves if necessary, we prepared our fire arrows and other munitions of war. However, on account of that very thing, here is yet another mishap that befell us. As our cannoneer was drying his powder in an iron pot, he left it so long on the fire that it got red hot. The powder ignited and the flame shot from one end of the ship to the other and even ruined some sails and rigging. 
because of the grease and the pitch with which the ship was rubbed and teared, the whole thing almost caught fire and we narrowly escaped being burned to death in the midst of the water. Now after these mishaps, we went, as they say, from the frying pan into the fire. Since we were still more than 500 leagues away from France, our ordinary allowance both of biscuit and of other food and drink, which was already only too small, was nonetheless suddenly cut in half. This delay was not only because of the bad weather and unfavorable winds, for besides that, the pilot, who had not correctly charted his course, found himself so far off that when he told us that we were approaching Cape Finisterre on the coast of Spain, we were still at the level of the Azores, which are almost 300 leagues away. To get the last bits of food, we had to clean and sweep out the hold, that is, the little white plastered room where the ship's biscuit is kept. There we found more worms and rat droppings than crumbs of bread. Nevertheless, separating it with spoons, we made a gruel of it which was as black and bitter as soot. You can imagine what a delightful dish it was. Those who still had monkeys and parrots now put them into the cabinet of their memory and made them serve as food. In short, by the beginning of May, two seamen had died of hunger and were cast overboard to be buried in the deep. Furthermore, during the famine the tempest raged day and night for three weeks, and the sea was so high and so stormy that we were obliged to strike all the sails and tie the rudder. Since we could no longer direct the ship, we had to let it drift with the waves and the wind, so that during this whole time, when we were in such distress, we could not catch a single fish. We thought we were at the end of our voyage, but necessity, inventress of arts, put into a number of minds to hunt the rats and mice, which were running through the ship in great numbers, dying of hunger. They were so intently pursued, and with so many kinds of rat traps invented by each of us that however they might try to hide, few of them escaped. And, indeed, when someone had caught a rat, he would value it much more highly than he would a beef if he were on land. We were reduced to such extremity that we had nothing left but Brazil wood, which had less moisture than any other. Several, however, pressed the limit, for lack of anything else, began to gnaw on it. When the bodies are weakened and nature is failing, the senses are alienated and the wits dispersed. All this makes one ferocious and engenders a wrath that can truly be called a kind of madness. One comprehends why it is that God in the book of Deuteronomy, threatening to send his people famine if they do not obey him, says expressly that the man who is tender and delicate, that is, of a gentle and benign nature, and who formerly had a horror 
of cruel things, in the extremity of famine, will nevertheless become so denatured that he will look with an evil eye upon his neighbor, even his wife and his children, and desire to eat them. I can testify that during our famine on the sea, we were so despondent and irritable that although we were restrained by the fear of God, we could scarcely speak to each other without getting angry and, what was worse, may God pardon us, glancing each other sideways, harboring evil thoughts regarding that barbarous act. As we left the Ecuador even farther behind us, two more of our seamen died of starvation. At this point, given the long time we had been tossing on the sea without sight of land, some of us imagined ourselves to be in the midst of a new flood. When we saw the bodies thrown into the water to feed the fish, we expected nothing else but to join them, all of us, and soon. I think it would have been better to send them to the bottom with some hope of soon putting foot to ground. Persecuted in France, in Spain and elsewhere across the sea, amongst the native tribe called Tupinamba. One of them approached me with the victim's foot in hand and washed themselves and plunge in with their whole bodies like ducks. This monstrous and terrible lizard. The combat is cruel and terrible beyond belief. To receive the fat that drips off. And they showed us his head with great peals of laughter. And all the people in the world were drowned, except for their ancestors, who took refuge in the highest trees. Must you labor so hard to cross the sea? On the 24th day of that month of May, 1558, when we lay exhausted, stretched out on the deck, almost unable to move arms or legs, we sighted Lower Brittany. We entered the beautiful and spacious harbour of Blavé in Brittany. There also arrived at that time a great number of vessels of war 
returning from voyages in various countries, firing their cannons and making the customary show of bravado upon the entering of the seaport, they were rejoicing in their victories. Among others, there was one from Saint-Malo, whose seamen had seized and carried off a Spanish ship returning from Peru, loaded with good merchandise. These news had been proclaimed all over France, and many merchants, Parisians, Lyonnais, and others had come to buy things from it. To our good fortune, some of them happened to be near our ship as we were landing. Not only did they help us by the arm, but also, and very much to the point, hearing of our great hunger, they warned us to take care not to eat too much. Our sailors, who insisted on gluttoning themselves from the very first day, I think of the twenty who survived the famine, more than half ate to the point of bursting, and so died. Now to finish what remains of our deliverance, it would seem that for this time we were quits with all our ills. However, Villegagnon, without our knowing anything about it, had given to the master of our ship, who knew nothing of it either, an indictment that he had formed against us, with the express order to the first judge in France to whom it would be presented, not only to arrest us, but also to put us to death by having us spurned as the heretics that he said we were. But it so happened that our guide knew some of the magistrates in that country who sympathized with the religion we professed. The chest, covered with waxed canvas, containing this indictment along with a number of letters addressed to various personages, was given to them. When they saw what they were ordered to do, by no means did they treat us as Villegagnon desired. Nothing remains to be told except what became of the five of our company who, as I said, after our first near shipwreck, returned to the land of Brazil. While we were sustaining the waves and storms of the sea, these faithful servants of Jesus Christ were enduring the torments, indeed, the cruel death that Villegagnon made them suffer. And I remembered that I alone of our company had left the boat in which I was all ready to return with them. I have been delivered, not only with my fellows, but also in my single person, from so many kinds of dangers, indeed, from so many abysses of death. Can I not say that it is the Eternal who causes us to live and to die, to descend into the grave and to arise from it? Yes, Certainly, I have had as good proof of it as any man alive." Unquote. Thank you for listening to the show. If you think this episode is worth a dollar or two, please donate to my PayPal account, link in description. Don't forget to subscribe. See you next time.